Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. In this episode, Frank and Andy speak with Dan Burkor. Dan is a serial entrepreneur who has founded four companies each on the forefront of a major technology wave, open-source software, the smartphone, cloud computing, and now machine learning. Currently, he leads NAMI ML, a company focused on helping app developers start and grow mobile subscription businesses. If you follow Frank and or Andy on social media, you certainly have heard them bang on about their secret project. I will drop a one-word hint here, foreshadowing. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. And if you like to think of data as the new oil, then you could consider us car talk because we focus on where the rubber hits the road. So with that, uh, as my guest on this uh, pandemic um, road trip that hasn't happened, is, <laughs> is, by my co-pilot here is Andy Leonard. How you doing, Andy? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, Frank. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I um, um, had a kind of an architecture session this morning. So that went really well. It, it was uh, it was an interesting conversation and I love doing those. Those are always fun. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm proofing the next book. Uh, proofing is the absolute last chance to remove all of the typos I've left in as I've uh, gone through the last three full edit sessions. And there's still some there, Frank. I'm convinced that the, uh, the next book's going to have a uh, you know, have a fair share of those. What I'm really concerned about is making sure that the demos work. And um, yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's tedious and it's the last pass. So, you know, it's like, is this over yet? And I'm sick and tired of reading this guy's writing and it's me. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, but yeah, that was the hardest part. People ask me, like when I, I wrote a book on Silverlight and aside from, it being about Silverlight, the hardest thing wasn't so much writing. It was having to go back and re-edit my own stuff. And like, you know, and I would look at it and be like, man, like I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> That's, I have said over and over again to my uh, computer monitor, who wrote this crap? But um, <laughs> fortunately, for this is a second edition. So, and and it, it's one of those second editions where I kept the first 10 or 11 chapters. I, I changed from uh, my writing language. I wrote it like three years ago. Um, and I really, this grew out of a series of blog posts that I wrote back in 2012. It was all in VB back then, Visual Basic. And so I wrote it that way in 2017. And for the second edition, I went back and updated all of that. That's really the only thing I changed was I went to C Sharp. And I kind of needed to because the rest of the book was going to be in C Sharp anyway. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of how it went. And for anybody listening that thinks, wow, Andy is smart. He's written a book about C-sharp. He must know C-sharp really, really well. I say throughout the book, I am not a C-sharp developer. Um, I feel like I'm working my way up to being a noob. Um, but but, but do you wear glasses? I do wear glasses, yes. So yes. you can C-sharp. It took me a while. Do you have your sound effects running, Frank? I do. We're back in Zencaster. So for folks listening, like, <laughs> I don't remember this being on the live stream because it's not. We're doing this the old-fashioned way. Right. Um, right. And don't worry. Andy and I have been live streaming a lot, which you probably noticed. But today, we have a very special guest, don't we, Andy? Yeah. Yeah. Dan Burkhaw is awesome. Um, he is a co-founder and CEO. And I hope I say this right. Is it is it NAMI, NAMI ML, Dan? Yeah, NAMI, like Tsunami. Ah, okay. I got it right the first time. NAMI ML, and it's uh, a really smart service for monetizing digital products uh, with subscriptions. And just he's had a whole ton of experience working in, um, you know, in marketing for the Oracle Marketing Cloud, uh, working with the mobile product for that. So pretty smart guy. Um, joined joined Oracle back during the acquisition of Push.io. And uh, Push.io was a leading uh, mobile messaging provider as well. And he served there as a co-founder and CEO. There's a bunch more in here about Dan, and it all kind of boils down to super smart, successful guy. We've had a little bit of banner before we click the re- uh, record button. 
And I can attest to that. It's a really enjoyable conversation. I look forward to this show. Uh, thanks for being here, Dan. Really yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So you're a serial entrepreneur and you founded a bunch of companies. Um, but my favorite part of the bio I read on you was that you wrote software that ended up on a nuclear submarine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's, that it's that hard, blew me away. I was like, "What?" It, it's it's hard to even tell that story sometimes because uh, it's so unbelievable. Um, I was 17 <laughs> years old at the time. Wow. Um, the, the company that um, that I uh, co-founded was building a flavor of Linux, a flavor of Linux that was designed to run on Apple Macintosh hardware. And at the time, the, the 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 reason for that was that you know Apple uh, was using the PowerPC chip, PowerPC chip in that moment of time. You know we're kind of talking the late '90s, early 2000s had fantastic uh, price per performance per watt, uh, hmm. which is a metric that a lot of folks in the kind of high performance computing world look at when they're trying to figure out um, how to build these kind of supercomputer clusters, and so. It just happened at that moment in time, the Mac had had the best uh, price per performance per watt because of the chips that they were using. And uh, so um, we uh, we ended up doing a deal uh, with uh, Lockheed Martin and the U.S. Navy to build a cluster of Macs running Linux um, that were deployed across the U.S. Navy nuclear subfleet for the purpose of doing sonar image processing. Wow. wow. The, 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 the software that I wrote was um, related to you know, how folks on the boat uh, would have to manage these units um, if there was issues, how they, you know, the kind of the maintainability, repairability was a big issue when you're actually out at sea and trying to, you know, have this stuff run in kind of a mission critical fashion. So we ended up, I mean, it was, this was such a crazy project because the hardware was modified hardware. It wasn't off the shelf Apple hardware. It was Apple hardware. And then we did a bunch of things to it. And then mm. it was Linux. And then it was some custom software that made the whole thing um, operate. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a, it's, it was, it was a nutty project and, um, I, I'm looking back on it now. I'm surprised that it had ever shipped quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it's broken like a true engineer, right? You always, you always look at your flaws and you're like, Oh my God, that's actually running. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you, where did you go after that? Cause it says, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur. And so how did you get into, I, I don't want to steal kind of our pre-canned questions thunder, but um, tell me, how did you get into AI and ML? Or were you doing ML on those, um, on those um, retrofitted Macs? No, we were, we weren't, but, but, you know, I think that part of the high, the, that world of high performance commute, computing where a lot of our customers were, you know, national labs or, you know, defense oriented things. I mean, uh, part of, part of the appeal of what we were offering in that period of time was that they were running algorithms um, and and doing some of this stuff uh, you know obviously ahead of ahead of ahead of their time and they needed there wasn't the cloud cloud computing yet so they were literally just trying to assemble the the biggest supercomputers using off-the-shelf hardware that they possibly could um, so we weren't writing the the algorithms we were more enabling um, these algorithms to be run. Um, but I, I would say the fast forward is that, uh, in, in terms of my career, is that working on that led to um, being involved in sort of the mobile ecosystem from the launch of the App Store and the iPhone back in 2007, 2008. And in a way, it was very, very similar to what we did with the submarines because you were dealing with um, you know, constrained hardware. You always had to care about performance and battery life and, you know, battery life less so on the subs, but some of the same sort of constraints um, where you're trying to get the best performance you can out of these things. Um, and operating in that mobile landscape and building apps for some of the, the largest consumer brands. And and then you guys mentioned in the in the intro about Push.io, this mobile messaging company that we built. Um, we ended up at Oracle uh, 
building this mobile marketing engine as part of the, the Oracle Marketing Cloud. And um, and one of the things that we we saw there is that you know now fast forward to kind of more modern times, and there's such a prevalent use out there of um, technology like um, email, you know, email marketing systems and push notifications in the world of mobile um, in order to tackle kind of a fundamental problem that exists with some of these products, which is the user downloads your app, let's say, and they use it and then, and then they churn and then they abandon. And, mm. um, and, and you as a, as a publisher of a product like this is one of the battles that you're trying to fight is how do I get them back into the experience? Right. And, and so our sort of observation as we were, you know, had done our tenure there and we're, uh, looking to do something next and new um, was a couple of things. Um, the first thing we saw was that with the iPhone 10, I think it was, um, Apple released Face ID, and that was using algorithms running on the device. So the benefit was you could unlock the phone very, very fast, but also it had some privacy characteristics where Apple doesn't need your, your face and the kind of the point cloud representation of your face to be up on their server somewhere. Um, so that was really intriguing to us. Uh, the other thing was that we saw that the app economy, so to speak, was in transition from kind of the early days of where it was paid downloads, transitioning to kind of in-app purchases, which right. the, the game ecosystem has really been been focused on, to trying to create more durable, sustainable revenue models um, through subscription. And so how we sort of arrived at focusing a lot on data at, at NAMI is that it, it, it seemed to us like there was, if, if we, we would, we really were excited about an idea that if we could help to give app publishers a mechanism to send way fewer push notifications and email messages because they had a technology stack that could allow them to detect in the experience, right, directly on the device, that somebody was showing signs of churn or that somebody was showing some early intent that they might be a, a, a candidate to be a subscriber. Um, and so just that idea that maybe there's a way that we could be part of cutting down the messaging load by making the, the actual experiences smarter and more intelligent about what users are doing um, was where, where we started. That's interesting. What sorts of signals that you can collect given, especially with Apple's kind of enhanced privacy uh, policies that they've been, been doing and what, uh, what sorts of signals kind of indicate churn? So, you know, this it, is a great question. When we started out, we were thinking we're going to collect all this crazy stuff. I mean, we were even thinking at one point in the early prototyping that, you know, maybe maybe what carrier the user is on is some signal. Um, maybe the f device form factor, whether it's the really expensive version of the phone or the the lower. You know, there was all these things that we were thinking about. But um, when when um, and we're not, uh, my co-founder and I are not um, experts in this field. Um, so one of the things that we did was we recruited our CTO who um, has a PhD in applied math and had been building data science and ML models kind of in production at, at in, you know, in the real world applications at places like the Los Angeles Times and Tribune Publishing. And one of the first things he told us when he came in was, guys, like, wait, you're, you're trying to, you don't need all these data points. Um, hmm. A lot of what you're trying to collect just isn't isn't going to move the needle. And so what it really gets to both on the, so we look at from, you know, from subscriptions, we're looking at kind of two things. One is um, what are signals that, that, that show that somebody might be, have a propensity to purchase. And then secondarily, that early churn detection or kind of likelihood to churn. Um, and it turns out it's, it's, it's pretty simple on some level because it's really about the behavioral signals around engagement. Interesting. So are they using the so, app? Are they using the app a lot? Are they, did they used to use it a lot and now they're not using it as much? Um, so, so those are kind of the key signals. So you're not popping up um, little, little boxes and saying, do you want to keep using the app? Check yes or no. 
No, I mean it's 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 funny. Um, you know, I I have a friend that has that has a company that that powers some of that uh, the uh, around the ratings, right? Do you want to yeah. rate this? Path? Yeah. And you know they have a really um, fascinating take on it, which is that because whenever I see one of those, I hit no. I don't. I you know I just like want to dismiss it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. You know he's got a strong viewpoint that by 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 asking a, a user a binary question, it provides them better data um, for what they're trying to do um, around kind of customer sentiment. And, um, and so I just thought I was fascinated by that because whenever I see one of those ratings pop up, so I just want to like, I want to say no, even if I like the experience on some <laughs> level, I have a, this visceral reaction. That's just like, ah, leave me alone. Right. Well, right. well and it's always when you're sorry, Andy, that's okay. Go ahead. It's always when you're trying to do something or the kids are screaming, like, do you want to rate this? Like, no, I want to use this stupid app. Like, even if I like it, but what I find myself doing and I've, as I'll say, not now, like you know, like remind me later because I'm like, it's a good app. I do want to review it, but right. <laughs> I never get to it. Sorry, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, that's okay. My my question was similar. It was a, you know, what does what does that indicate? Because I do what you do and you know what both of you have said you do. I most of the time click no or later. So what is the indication um of that? Does that mean somebody is is happy with the app and they want to get back to it? Well, I think for at least that ratings use case, um, the what they're what they're really trying to do is, um, you know, kind of build build buckets of users where you want to know if a user is if if somebody says no to that prompt, well, you might want to provide a mechanism for them to leave some comments or some feedback or or met, you know target them with some messaging such that you can understand what they're not happy with versus in, okay. in with with the with the with the rationale being let's try to keep a bad review off the app store um, <laughs> let's try to let's yeah. try to get the data create a customer feedback loop that we can have an, a dialogue with the customer rather than kind of this blind review that we don't really have a way to kind of address other than you know aggregate trends yeah so that's part of what they're trying to do. And then people that say, yeah, I love it, you know, yeah, put, put, push them over to, to leave a review because it's probably going to be a good one. And unfortunately, mm. you know, in these app ecosystems, reviews and ratings do have a, a real, you know, maybe I say unfortunately, and I'm not sure if it's unfortunate really, <laughs> but these reviews have a, a bearing on searchability and, and whether somebody's going to discover your app. Um, so, right. so that's why it matters. No, that's very true. And plus, I, I also wonder, in terms of churn or usage, I mean, there's so many experiences. And I think there's some apps that just notify you all the time. And eventually, I'll either uninstall the app or just turn off notifications from it. Do, do you have that data too? Like, you know, how many, you know, can you see when the users turned off notifications? Uh, that's, I mean, sh sure, we could have that data. Um, mm -hmm. We don't. Um, oh, okay. That's not part of our set of signals. So we're really trying to drive it. We're, what we're we're trying to build really is a. Uh, so I was at Oracle. I was building the mobile part of the Oracle Marketing Cloud, and that and in in a lot of or the Oracle Marketing Cloud is about giving folks that do a lot of thing uh, commerce or e-commerce, you know, this kind of powerful platform where you can message the user kind of in the in, in the right channel. So SMS display ads, email, push, kind of based upon things like, hey, maybe they put something in their shopping cart and they didn't complete the transaction and you want to, uh, you want them to uh, not abandon that cart. You want them to, to complete the cart. Um, but that's in a commerce use case. What we're really, um, what we've identified is that in this move to subscriptions and kind of digital subscriptions, there's not really a marketing system out there that helps folks manage um, how they how they communicate with their users, their subscribers, their former subscribers, et cetera, because a subscription's a life cycle. It's not right. just uh, a, a purchase in a moment in time. And so you have to message way more intelligently and, and be informed by that context uh, of the life cycle. So for example, if somebody um, has subscribed, maybe they've had a couple of renewals um, and now they've turned off auto renew. 
Well, that is a signal for sure that, and I don't need a fancy algorithm to, to know that that means that this user is showing some in, in, um, some indication that they are probably going to churn out of the subscription. Right. Maybe they're not sure going to churn out of the entire experience if it has a freemium piece. Um, but here's the thing is that in that window, when they turn off auto renew to when the, the next renewal is, it's not minutes. It's probably days or weeks, um, depend, or maybe even months, depending on the billing frequency of the original subscription. And so you got an opportunity in that, in that window to remind users about the value of the product. Um, right. And, and it's okay that some users cancel, right? Because the thing about the subscription economy is that it's trying to find folks that are a great match for the product that you're offering versus, uh, it, it, so subscriptions aren't a scam um, if, if you do it right. It is, it's, it's meant to, for you to find your best customers. Not, not everybody is a good candidate for, for every app subscription. And that's totally yeah. okay. And so rather than marketing to this kind of massive audience, what you're really trying to do is find users who are a great fit and really can become fans and advocates of your brand. Well, doesn't that start by mass marketing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right in the sense that, and that's why the ratings matter and, and yeah. the whole acquisition. I mean, you got to find the funnel. Um, yeah. But, but what's actually interesting is that, you know, there, in, in the mobile ecosystem, there's a lot of effort spent around um, a- acquiring installs and you pay uh, these cost per install campaigns where you may, you guys may have seen it on some of the social networks where, where it's a, a, an ad for an app. And if you click through to the app, uh, to the ad, it'll take you to, to one of the stores and then you want to install, you install that app. And so what happens though, is that a lot of marketers are measuring, you know, am I getting a good CPI? Am I getting a good cost per install rate? Right. Am I spending as little money as I can to get that install? Right. And, and that's for, for that long tail or that, that kind of wide, the wide part of the funnel on acquisition. But what, what, isn't happening as much, um, in part because there's been gaps in in the data, and and this is one of the things that we're trying to to help with is that it may actually be that um, the user that's the less the least expensive to acquire the install isn't actually the 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 user the type of user that is has the best lifetime value from a subscription right. perspective. You might be willing to pay more for an install if it's more. Um, it ma- if it's a better match to your business objective. Um, so that that's some of what's happening out there and, and some of the old school, or I say old school, it's really not, uh, but how one thinks about acquisition in kind of the broader mobile ecosystem, I think needs to be looked at differently if you're trying to offer a subscription subscription revenue stream. Well, I, I hear you. Um, and I'm, I'm there actually. One of the, uh, one of the businesses that I run is, uh, is products that are subscribed to and, you know, collecting data, even, even getting data to start with when you're starting blind is incredibly challenging because one of the things we were looking for is what do we got to do (laughs) to, to get somebody to buy this? And I know that sounds silly, but this is not a trivial you know, a trivial subscription amount. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a product that has huge ROI, but, you know, getting somebody to plop down, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for a subscription based on monthly or yearly is it, still a quite a bit of uh, friction to overcome. So I, I get exactly what you're saying. You kind of, you, you jumped over it, but you said it's something really important a while ago. You said subscriptions aren't a scam. And I think some of the market sees that, you know, sees it that way. It's, and it's, a, you know, this, it's different when you're ch- charging someone 99 cents and when you're charging them 99 bucks or 999 bucks. Yeah. And, and there, to be clear, there are scammy subscriptions out there. It's oh, not to say yeah, those yeah. don't exist. It's just that if you actually want to build a durable, we focus on the durability of the, of the subscription business. If you want to build a real subscription business that has longevity and has a really nice growing subscriber base, then yeah. that can't be a scam. Right. right. And the word we use internally is I like durable. Uh, we use sustainable. 
So I absolutely love that. It, it, it's very encouraging to hear you say that, uh, Dan. So thanks for that. <laughs> I, I also think that it's not just software that's going into subscription model. And, and I was very skeptical of the subscription model myself. I thought it was a scam. I was like, oh, okay. So instead of buying like one shrink rock box, box every like so many years, now I have to pay somebody every month. One thing that turned my opinion around on the whole notion of it being a scam, not that they're, you know, you know what, uh, what I mean, it is Adobe, right? Like at one point to get everything in the Adobe product suite, I mean, it was $13,000. And I just wasn't going to spend that much money to get all that. But when they switch to Creative Cloud and it's, you know, 25 or $50 a month, that is far more palatable. And I also think from my point of view, that's far more palatable and predictable. But also from the, from the company side, you know, it's, it's less money per customer per month, but it is a per month as opposed to, you know, every 18 or 24 months, you you know, they would get a, you know, $13,000 from somebody to buy that box, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's an interesting thing. And, and now we're starting to see the subscription model kind of come to content. Um, you know, Disney plus D plus, um, Peacock. I mean, everybody has every media company starting to do their own streaming model. So I think your timing is really good to, to kind of, you know, analyze and kind of understand this because i think the subscription model is here to stay yeah and i think um how we think about the categories um is is that it really could be anything um i just saw yesterday with uh with the tesla earnings report that they were talking about offering their full self-driving i know that i'll put the asterisks behind that that marketing <laughs> label, but, um, that currently that's a, you know, multi-thousand dollar add-on and right. now they're going to offer it as a subscription. So more people can, um, access that. And I think that's exactly what you're saying with the creative suite. Uh, the creative cloud example is that, you know, at the shrink box price points, they were just not going to be able to reach all the people that have a creative fiber that, um, would have been able to do something amazing with that software had they had it. Right. Um, the other thing is, is you know, we, we talk about this a little bit as like the plusification, right? Everybody's calling this you know, Disney Plus or whatever plus, um, the plusification of everything. And so you can imagine a, even in an in industry like, like heavy equipment, um, you know, what's the subscription service for the John Deere tractor? Right. Is, is it a- actually accessing the tractor? You know, is it, is it a subscription where you, you, you know, it's almost like a lease, um, or is it a, a add-on service where, um, you can leverage that piece of physical plant and equipment using through, through more bells and whistles, more capabilities that are unlocked through software. You know, that, that is a very interesting use case. And I, since I live in Farmville, Virginia, not the game, I have to say that every time, um, (laughs) Never played the game, but I've had people read my feeds and go, you know, you play that game all the time. I'm going out to water the chickens or work in the garden or the greenhouse. <laughs> I've never played that game. So but he's actually doing it. Like that's the funny thing. Uh, yeah, for real. Realize. Yeah, for real. The you know what you could do though with a John Deere subscription is you could access um, the tools. Like maybe you need a tillage tool or a disc. Because you only need those, uh, you know, a few weeks a year. And rather than go out and pay $10,000 for this, you know, super disc that'll, you know, really cut down the amount of passes you have to make and, you know, just do everything well, rather than just pay for that outright, let's say it's, I don't know, $15,000, you can just subscribe for 150 bucks a month and go get it when you need it. Uh, if anyone from John Deere is listening, um, you can cut me in for. Actually, you should cut Dan in on for a percentage of that. He's the one who's brought it up. But you know, there it it is a lot of that service. Uh, you know, service at scale. Um, you know, for subscriptions. I know Frank works at the Microsoft Technology Center, and he helps a lot of customers think how they can apply Azure to their business model. 
And that's one of the nicest things about having that technology scaling is you can go move the slider. You know, the, the classic example is the income tax business. And when you need it, you just go move the slider all the way up. And then when you're done, you move it all the way back down. Right. Did we lose Dan? Or is no, he just I'm really here. Quiet? Okay, no, I'm good. here. I'm just thinking. I'm. Th- I'm just thinking about the farm, and uh, and excited about. I mean, that's the thing that's exciting is that where does this all go? And it's not just about make packaging something as a subscription. But back to the creative example, creative yeah. cloud example. Yeah. What? Um, how much more co- amazing content has been created by creators because of uh, accessibility to the tools. And so in, you know, take, take that to farming, take that to any of these other categories where, you know, Hey, maybe I need a crane to do something, but you know, to rent a crane's expensive. Right. Um, so it's just interesting how it might, uh, might make uh, things that have traditionally been incredibly specialized and expensive, more accessible. No, that's true. And it, I think it, I think it's a win-win for everybody because it's more accessible. You also have a shorter feedback loop uh, to get paid for the company. So I think it it's not that typical. And software has been kind of moving towards this anyway. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. you know, the continuous delivery or continuous uh, integration, that sort of thing is just something that I don't know if the chicken or the egg came first, but I mean, certainly, you know, if you were only deploying something once a year or every 18 months, certainly you don't have to have processes in place if you're de- deploying something every 18 days. It's a, it's, a, it's a different scale. And I think I think it's interesting to see, you're right, that these tools are becoming more and more accessible with that. That's, um, that's interesting. It's, it, it's interesting. The farm example is interesting because I know there's a lot of controversy about right to repair, particularly... <laughs> bringing uh, John Deere, I think, is somewhere in that. So I, I wonder how, I wonder how that will shake out. Do you do you think that's yeah. even tangential, or is it just kind of, you know, Frank had too much coffee today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, that's definitely above my pay grade and outside of my industry sector expertise, but. You know, it's it's if you have to if you have to even ask or if you if, if that's a question that comes up, it, it it it's sort of like the 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 robo taxi use case where you know you you hear people talk about well who 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 takes the liability um, if if the robo taxi you know runs somebody over is it the is it Tesla? Is it is it the person that owns the Tesla? Is it the sh- is it the Uber service that operates the network? And you know what? I think it's just all going to get figured out. And it'll take yeah. some time and there will be like everything, um, um, you know, it, the, the, the right guard rails probably won't be there on the on day one. But then there will be, unfortunately, an incident or something and then it'll get sorted out. Although I, I think in that particular case, people are being a little more proactive thinking about some right. of these doom scenarios. Well, when it's life and death, that that makes perfect sense. You know, just circ- circling back, um, Dan, a little bit to I. Like Frank, I absolutely love, um, you've said it twice now about how many things have been created using the um, the Adobe suite because a whole different group of people got access uh, to that technology. Um, I, I think too about the, about Adobe, um, you know, how, I, I wonder how the economics worked out for them. I wonder if, if they grew enough uh, to overcome the thirteen thousand dollar price point every so many years or months, Frank. Uh, you know, I wonder how that total amount of income compares to the amount of income that's trickling in by comparison. You know, each month at twenty five or fifty dollars a month. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean the, that's how data driven is produced. Anything you see me do on you know video wise on social media, I mean that's I I have Premiere, I have I have the whole suite. Hmm. Um, this is edited in Audition and filtered to Audition, and honestly, like you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to drop thirteen thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, I think it. Right. I think you're right. I think it did open up a whole market for them and. Adobe, Adobe's doing a lot of interesting things. I don't want to go in a rabbit hole on that, but if anyone from Adobe is listening and you'd love to come on the show, um, <laughs> I can talk about it. But, um, 
Yeah, no, I think it, I think it's a, it's it's the fascinating shift, and I think I think you're right. I think companies were skeptical, and I think that um, I think if consumers were skeptical, you know, um, I mean, Microsoft's. Yeah, I think when Microsoft and Adobe shift that, I think the consumers kind of and and generally IT departments in general kind of made that shift too, because you know you don't have to buy Office every so often, you know, however much that would cost for an enterprise. You just subscribe per month per user. So you can scale up and scale down your costs. I think that, you know, obviously I work for Microsoft and, you know, they pay my mortgage and all that. But I mean, I think that's a great example, you know, because think about how ubiquitous Office is. And I, I guess I do have access to the financials, but if you look at Microsoft stock, I mean, it's, it's done pretty well, uh, probably in, in no small part to the fact that it is subscription based and, you know, you don't have to to buy and stand up a server you just kind of it's everything as a service you know what i mean like even even in uh you know small businesses they can get you know if they pay x amount per month they'll have the same access that large enterprises do you know with the telephony and all the all the bells and whistles you get on office also the mindset of of scale down is really important because it's okay if somebody needs to you know, go to fewer seats or in the case of consumer software. Okay. If somebody turns out of the subscription, um, it, so here's an interesting feature. So at, uh, uh, the Google ecosystem, Google play, they have a mechanism where, um, if you try to cancel a subscription in one of your apps, um, they give you an opportunity to pause the subscription, which I think is very fascinating. And that's a, another signal, right? Because sometimes people, want to cancel because they want to shift the dollars somewhere else, or they want to, you know, uh, they want to save some money this month. Right. But that doesn't mean they don't like the product. It just means they're trying to reallocate resources. Um, right. so pause is interesting because it gives the publisher a signal that, Hey, this user is not upset with the experience. Um, they just right. need to take a break. Interesting. Very interesting. I like that. Very, very cool. Well, Dan, we have a list of questions that we usually ask guests around this time in the show. And uh, the very first question is, how did you find your way into data? And kind of as a clarification of that, did data find you or did you find data? Well, it, 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 it probably found it probably found me in, in, in the sense that um, the eye-opening experience working inside the Oracle Marketing Cloud was kind of seeing the the ad tech part of the world and how uh, companies are trying to stitch together data across all these disparate sources in order to have a more fulsome understanding of the user they're trying to market to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was... Um, that was pretty eye-opening because, you know, we've all had the experience where the banner ad kind of follows you throughout the internet to kind of <laughs> understand why that's happening um, right. is, is really, really interesting. And it quite frankly informed why uh, with NAMI, we're trying to use things like the on-device machine learning capabilities um, and, and, and focus our, our collection and try to minimize things like PII and, and other kind of uh, more, personal information, um, and yet still drive some of these ML-based solutions, um, because we didn't want to necessarily build something that was just another part of this this very privacy-unfriendly part of the ecosystem. Right. Interesting. And, and the privacy and the PII and the management of that is a moving target, isn't it, with all the uh, legislation sure. as well? Oh yeah, sure is, and and some especially in the in I don't say especially, but in the mobile space, there's been you know analytics tools and all these other solutions for years now that um, have taken approach of basically vacuum up everything, and right. it's it's going to be much harder for those guys to um, stay compliant um, with ever changing regulation when that's how they've architected their whole system. We've architected to try to be more of a data minimalist. Um, now it means there's some engineering challenges, right? Um, we, um, we, we make our, our lives a little bit harder, but we just think that it's, if, if it gives us more, um, um, 
it, it gives us a better position to be in relative to regulation. But more importantly, we're trying to think about this as as end users ourselves, um, and and try to strike a, a little bit of a more um, mindful thread about well, what data am I willing to give up to get something in return, um, instead of just assuming that you know users are going to be fine giving everything up and but they're not right a consent driven model i think you're right has has a future so yeah our, i'm sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say so that i guess data kind of found me but here here we are <laughs> so second question what's your favorite part of your current gig yeah uh there's there's two answers to that. I mean, one is that I've got such a great team and uh, nurturing the team and recruiting new people and that part of it just as a you know, the non-technical side is is really great. And um, it's especially so because while we're while we're working on you know we're not we're not trying to cure cancer. Um, and and so uh, what it means is that. Um, we have to figure out how to talk about what we're doing in a way that people get excited about. And what I found is that some of the topics around privacy, some of the topics around trying to engineer at scale um, and some of the things that we're doing, um, it just, it's just a really attractive uh, recruiting opportunity for us. And, and it's just the, t- the team that we've been able to put together is, is just, I can't say anything. Uh, it, it's, it blows me away. Um the, the second part, though, is that uh, we're kind of creating a category, this subscription marketing system that we're building. It's kind of a new thing. And and so that's exciting, both because we're kind of plowing our own frontier, um, but we're trying to, to do that informed by all these lessons from companies that we've been involved in in the past. So be it, you know, going, there's still examples going all the way back to, that shrink wrap software containing Linux for Mac that got deployed onto a submarine um, that still inform how I think about things or things I did at, at push IO and then things inside of Oracle. And so, you know, doing something new, but, but being informed by the lessons of the past is, is uh, the other part that's really exciting for, for us. Um, and oh, by the way, you know, we're, we're doing things in some cases with on device ML that really feels like it's, at the state of the art. And maybe we, you know, we ended up, we end up placing some, some wrong bets on some of this stuff, but it, it's still, it's, it's still rewarding to try, even if uh, we're not sure where it's all going to lead to. Well, it makes perfect sense. And I, I love your emphasis on the shift from, you know, collecting data at the server end of the pipe versus collecting it at, you know, at, at the point of a contact at the, on the phone or device itself. That, that's got to be game changing. Yeah, I think there's going to be whole whole uh, categories of companies that, you know, web analytics or mobile analytics or some of these other parts of the marketing or advertising tech stacks that change to that that edge based approach. Um, whole new companies are kind of the next generation of of these categories. Um, so while we're trying to do something kind of new, I think there's existing categories that are going to see some disruption um, driven by privacy. Um, and you know, think about how powerful these devices are. There's no reason yeah. they can't be taking some of the burden. So as much as yeah, we can scale up our Azure as much as we want. Um, you know, there's a there can be a, there also can be a balance where if I can do more on the device, then I can focus my Azure or my other cloud infrastructure on the things that really need to be at the cloud scale. Right. No, it makes perfect sense. It it really does. Um, so we have three complete the sentence uh, questions next, and so the first is when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Well, uh, normally I would answer that question with uh, uh, one of my hobbies, which is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, however, I am currently on ju- uh, uh, jiu-jitsu hiatus in part oh. from because of the pandemic. Um, sure. It's obviously a high contact sport, but also because um, I've got a kiddo on the way. So I'm trying to limit my exposure to kind of anything outside of my house. 
Um, right. but it's a, it's one of the things I like to do and, um, and it's totally different from technology, but it's incredibly, while it's a, a physical sport, um, mm-hmm. it also activates a different part of my brain and kind of creativity. Um, so it's, yeah, it's so great. Well, congratulations. Well, first off, congratulations. Yeah. 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 Hey, thanks. Yeah. yeah this awesome. is this will be num- the this, ultimate trip. This will be, this will be number one. So, uh, oh, wow. We're we're nervous but excited. Oh, that's awesome! Congrats! It's a yeah. uh, it's an adventure that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, next fill in the blank question is complete this sentence. I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. I just think how it surprises us. And how it's applied. I mean, just the this just this week, seeing how you know Reddit meets Robinhood meets destroy a hedge fund. You know, I would have, that wouldn't have been on my bingo card. And I'm not necessarily saying that I'm uh, um, advocating using manipulating the market that way. But it's it's just like we're constantly surprised by technology, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it so so delightful and to work in this field and just see new things that seem so obvious once you experience them, but they weren't obvious until somebody came up with it and put the the, the love and energy into bringing it to the universe. No, that's a good point. There, I think if there if there was a movie about kind of what's happening with GameStop and Reddit and the hedge funds, it would have been branded as ridiculous. But here we are. Here we are. The other yeah. thing was this week, uh, back to Tesla, the the new Model S refresh that they did, um, it has this kind of crazy looking steering wheel. And I, I just read an article about, because there's no, they got rid of all the little stocks. So like the turn signal stock and mm-hmm. the, all of that's gone. And so the question was, well, well how do you, how do you go into reverse or how do you go into drive? And um, I saw an article that explained it and they're using, they're trying to use their autopilot cameras to know that, Hey, if you're in front of your garage, well, drive isn't a valid choice. So (laughs) you must intend to go in reverse. And that blows me away. I mean, we'll see how that works in the real world. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Like, but again, it's like, that is, that is just some some cool technology. Um, it'll be one of those interesting things. Like in a few years, does the stock come back because that was maybe a, a bet that they made too early, or did they did they get it right? Yeah. Or will there be an aftermarket for people to install them? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Bring your own stock. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. If you want to go all Dukes of Hazard, then what? I mean, <laughs> you have to weld the door shut, right? <laughs> I guess. Wow. But so our next and final complete this sentence, I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. I, I think one of the most annoying things about the internet is uh, recipes. Um, I, I know that sounds crazy, but uh, I saw this something the other day that said like 20, like, Food and and beverage related websites get like twenty seven percent more traffic, uh, search traffic than other, than the next top category. Wow. Um, and you know we we cook a lot. We love to cook and try new things, and it just feels like it's a constant struggle. And these experiences are because they're all very like ad driven. Um, yeah. You can never actually like see the recipe or the directions. Yeah. You're always getting covered in a banner ad. And, and so it sounds like something simple, but it's like, I just want um, a wonderful experience that can help me explore the world of cooking and kind of know what I like, but also that that helps encourage me to try some new things. But that's a delicate balance because you don't want it to take you kind of 180 degrees in the opposite direction, or maybe you do, but sometimes you just want to be, be like, oh, well, you know, this pattern exists. You tend to like to use, you know, rices and, and pastas. Well, what if you introduced, um, you know, into a recipe that you're already like to make, why don't you try to introduce quinoa or, you know, Mm. just like kind of a, a, a food 
navigator, both in terms of ingredients and flavors, um, but also in terms of skills, because I'm not a professional by any stretch of the imagination. I'm, I'm basically an like not even an amateur chef, it feels like, um, with some of the stuff coming out of our kitchen. But I'd like to get better, and uh, I'd like some help doing it. So it's funny I'm you mentioned that. Be- go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Frank. No, go. No. Okay. No, because I'm my wife cooks really well. She she's really good at it, and I'm like a noob. Like boiling water, I would have to like look it up online <laughs> and figure out what to do. But, so one of the things that um, I got for Christmas last year um, was a larger Echo Show, which is an Amazon Alexa device. And as soon as I say her name, she's probably going to perk up and start chiming in. But um, there's a food network or food uh, kitchen to go or something like that. It's called, and there's this whole recipe making thing that it has. So if you, you go through it, it doesn't quite do what you said with the recommendations. Although I would imagine that um, with all the smart people at Amazon, I'm sure that that's coming. But what's cool about it is you can see a video of, of it being made and you can go through the recipe and the screen stays up. Doesn't like go into the dark mode, which is a problem Mm. on my iPad. I don't I think it's well designed. Is it perfect? No. Do I need to do a lot to learn how to cook? Oh, yeah. But I think it's a step in the right direction. And and particularly, I don't know. I just think it's fascinating that you can and with when you're cooking, your hands are usually busy and they're or they're messy. I think the voice UI aspect of the Alexa devices, I think, lends itself to a significant advantage there. So I don't know. I think it's cool. But, you know, I'm a nerd. So <laughs> And it was an excuse for me to get a better Amazon Echo. So there you go. I I was going to share that I'm a professional eater. I think <laughs> not not so much, but I enjoy uh, preparing foods. And Frank and I both experiment with diets, and um, and and both our wives are are really good cooks. Uh, so that that works out uh, well for me being a professional eater. I think. Um, I'll I'll jump in here, Frank, with our uh, sixth question. Um, Share something, Dan, about yourself, but we remind you um, something interesting or different about yourself, but we remind you it's a family podcast. So, (laughs) Something different from being a 17-year-old writing code for nuclear submarines? Well, that's, you know, that's a powerful story. So that's hard. That's hard to beat. It's going to be hard to to top that. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we've already covered this. <laughs> that 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 is hard to beat. I mean, that's like that's like one for the books right there. <laughs> I don't know if I can beat it. I mean, uh, No. That's, that's hard that's to beat. Be- anything else is just going to be weak. Yeah. Well, the Brazilian right. jiu-jitsu, that was interesting. I that was cool. I've I've never heard of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So have you seen sort of like, have you ever come across a UFC fight? Yes. So, you know, UFC ultimate fighting championship, but it's kind of generally mixed martial arts. And so you'll mm-hmm. see folks that are like boxers and, you know, folks that have other martial arts background. Um, but a lot of those, the, the people that win um, have experience with Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, um, you know, the whole, the whole kind of basis for it is a, it came out of Brazil and, you know, kind of from, from the streets, so to speak. Although actually it's got origin in um, lineage back to judo out of Japan, um, okay. jiu-jitsu and judo out of Japan. But it's really about close contact. So, you know, whereas you're standing up um, and, 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 you know, swinging at somebody, um, somebody that's a, that's a jiu-jitsu practitioner, their objective is to try to get the fight to the ground and then mm. figure out how to obtain and maintain a dominant position. So that's either, you know, being on top of somebody or sweeping them so that you're in control. And it's, um, it's sort of like, a uh, a, a three-dimensional chess game in a way, because based upon, you know, so you get the fight to the ground and in, in jujitsu training, you know, we grapple. And so there's rules around, uh, you know, you're not allowed to break somebody's arm, obviously. Um, right. <laughs> uh, or, 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 you know, manipulate their fingers or, you know, poke them in the eyes. But um, you're able to do certain things to um, 
try to get them into a submission hold where they'll then tap and that mm. means you reset and you know go back to neutral and then figure out who can get back to that dominant position and so it ends up being this sort of wild game of of based upon what somebody else is doing how you respond um, and the folks that are black belts that have been doing this for you know more than ten years in a lot of cases, you know wow. their menu of options of how to respond and based upon the other person is like this very large list. And I'm only a blue belt, so my list of options is uh, short. So if okay. I've if I've tr- if I've done you know the three things I know how to do to cope with a certain situation, and then they know how to react to that and now I don't have the fourth item in my toolbox. Well, then I guess I'm about to get tapped out. Mm. So I'm making a note here. You can hear me writing and it's don't mess with. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you do uh, make sure you're a black belt or a brown belt or a purple belt or probably even most other blue belts. (laughs) Where uh, so question seven is where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Well, the company Nami ML, uh, our website is www.nami.nami.ml.com. So that's that's the company. Um, you know, I'm on all the socials. Uh, my last name is Burkhab, B-U-R-C-A-W. Um, so if you want to follow my crazy journey, uh, any of the normal places, uh, you'll find me. Awesome. Very cool. Well, uh, Dan, one last thing. Audible is a sponsor and uh, listeners can go to thedatadrivenbook.com. And if you do that, you get a free Audible book and we get a, a, a little bit of a kickback if you uh, subscribe. So it helps keep the show going. It helps, uh, it helps us explain to our wives what we're doing, um, you know, up here talking to ourselves. Um, so, or Frank's in the basement, I'm upstairs. So up here down there talking to ourselves. Can, can you recommend a good book that someone might listen to? Do I get two? Can I recommend? Two? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I've got a data one. So that, that'll be the, the, the one that I do first. So, th- so this book's from a few years ago, but it's, it's, it, I think it's totally relevant to, folks that are working in this world is called the weapons of math destruction. Oh, cool name by Kathy O'Neill. And the subtitle is how big data increases inequality and threatens democracy. Wow. wow. Okay. And she really gets into, she gets into, you know, making sure that you're thinking about the data biases and different things as you're building these algorithms. So right. that's a great one. And then, for the from the Wayback Machine, um, the first book that I read as I was geeking out as a junior high school kid that was fascinated by computers um, was it is a book called The Cuckoo's Egg, and it's this old school, real kind of based on a true story um, about computer espionage in kind of the early internet, really back to BBSs. Wow. Um, and it's just a fun read for those, either for people, uh, people that have been around a while and it'll, it'll give you some nice sentimental about the old days. Um, mm. or, uh, you're j- if you're just getting started in, in computing, it's a fun story about, uh, where all this started. Interesting. Very cool. And that's awesome. Clifford, Clifford Stoll. Clifford Stoll. Yeah. He's a character. Cliff Stoll. He used to be, um, my first saw him. He was on a PBS documentary about how he caught, I think, Kevin Mitnick, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, plus, he also had a regular segment on a TV show that used to be on, I forget the channel, but it was um, called The Site. It had Soledad O'Brien and, um, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte. Oh, that was like a CNET or a, was that CNET, a CNET or like. Yeah. CNBC. Yeah. And that was the first show that was like on a mainstream cable that was about kind of technology and the web and the internet. This uh, that show always blew me away. But Cliff had like a kind of a, he, they gave him kind of free rant to talk about a topic for five minutes and it was always entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So with that, uh, I want to say thank you, Dan, for your time. 
Um, thanks for joining us here at Data Driven and um, go check out his site and go check out what he's doing because uh, I think the subscription uh, model is here to stay and I think it's going to find it in a lot more places. And if you're listening to this at some point in the future, yes, that might have been foreshadowing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so with that, I will let the nice British lady end the show. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. We know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. You have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And... Can't the world use a little more joy these days? Now, go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.